Welcome to episode 85 of the I Want to Party with Bob Bobcast. This is the Paul Tremblay interview extravaganza episode. Yes, the Paul Tremblay, author of such fine novels as A Head Full of Ghosts, Disappearance at Devil's Rock, Cabinet at the End of the World, Growing Things, and that's a short story collection, and his very latest novel, Survivor Song. Paul Tremblay can definitely write, I'll tell you that. I mean, this man is absolutely one of my favorite authors that is active today. I'm going to try and keep this intro part very brief. I don't want you to miss out on any of the interview with Paul by me blabbing away at the beginning of this episode and taking up your very precious podcast listening time. So here we go. I'm going to tell you about how I personally discovered Paul Tremblay, and it went like this. I used to use the Goodreads app very regularly to discover new authors and new books, to find out when books by authors I already loved were going to have a new release, that kind of thing. Mainly, I did use Goodreads, though, to discover new authors and thus new books. Paul Tremblay and the book A Head Full of Ghosts came up as a recommended read kind of thing on Goodreads for me, so I went out and bought it. it what a book! Holy shit! I got that book in either late 2017 or early 2018, and that book is still on my mind. It still haunts me. The story in A Head Full of Ghosts really has stuck with me for a very very long time. Yeah, it's been almost three years since I first read the book, and I still, to this day, in December of 2020, still think about it all the time. Now, very simply put, the story is about a family and their two daughters, Marjorie and Mary. Marjorie and Mary are kind of the focus of the story, in my opinion. Marjorie might be possessed by a demonic entity, maybe, she might also be struggling with very severe mental illness. Huh. I would suggest you read that book. Kind of decide for yourself. Ambiguous, that is one word you could use to describe the story in A Head Full of Ghosts. You could also call it a horror story. Maybe a psychological and suspenseful thriller. Again, read the book. If you enjoy horror fiction, supernatural thrillers, that kind of thing. And if you also enjoy questioning just what in the fuck is going on in a story in a really great way, mind you, then A Head Full of Ghosts is the book for you. I love that book so much. After I read it, I went out and I bought another of Paul's books, Disappearance at Devil's Rock. And that is an incredible book. I really love that one. I love them both equally, I do think. The ending, I will say, of Disappearance at Devil's Rock was kind of heartbreaking. The whole book was a little heartbreaking in the best way. Again, I had to wait a while for Paul's next book, The Cabinet at the End of the World. That one came out in the summer of 2018. Then I got my hands on a short story collection of Paul's titled Growing Things. And now Paul's latest book, Survivor Song, that's the very last book of Paul's that I got my grubby little mitts on. I'm telling you, Paul Tremblay's books do not last very long for me. My average time spent reading one of his books is about two to three days. Keep in mind, these books are all 300 plus pages, okay? So they're not short books. They're not like 50 page long books and I'm going, oh, okay, I finished it, two days. I am blazing through these books. Do you know why? I cannot put them down once I start reading them, that's how good they are. I hate to use the word because I don't like this word that much, a page turner. All of Paul Tremblay's books 
are page turners for me, for sure. I just, I have to know what's going to happen next. The stories and Paul's writing, it just flows so naturally, so easily, I can't put them down. They're that good. And also, P.S. Paul, if you are listening, uh, thank you so much for all those nights of only getting around four hours of sleep. I do appreciate that. Thank you. So here's the deal. This is kind of a recommended order in which I would say for you to also read Paul Tremblay's books, because that's the way I would do it if I had to go back and do it again. So I would start off with A Head Full of Ghosts, then go to Growing Things. That way you start out really strong with A Head Full of Ghosts. And after that, you get kind of a variety of stories, kind of a sampler pack of Paul's writing with a very good variety of different types of stories. It's a growing things is great. Then after you've read those two books, read Disappearance at Devil's Rock, then hit Cabin at the End of the World, and finally finish up with Survivor Song. I would definitely read Disappearance at Devil's Rock before you read Survivor Song. There is a character crossover between those books, and it is oh so very sweet. Yes, there is a sort of justice, in my mind at least, that happens in Survivor Song to some of the characters from Disappearance at Devil's Rock. I would highly recommend that you read those books. Paul and I do spend some time in this interview talking about all those books I just mentioned, so be sure, stay tuned, listen to the interview, listen to the whole thing, please. For the songs and the music in this episode... Because Paul does have great taste in music, I'm going to be playing selections from a couple of Paul's favorite bands, kind of, sort of. At the very beginning of this episode was a cover version of the Husker Du song, Celebrated Summer, as performed by the band Big Drill Car. Yes, it's a cover of a song by one of Paul Tremblay's favorite bands, Husker Du. I'm telling you, Paul has great taste in music. Halfway through the interview segment of this episode you'll be hearing a song titled The Real Meaning of Christmas by a band called Future of the Left. And holy shit, what a band. Future of the Left. They're absolutely incredible. They're from Wales in the UK. Paul does love them. And he more or less turned me on to them when he expressed his love for them during the interview. Truly an incredible band. Thank you, Paul. I really do appreciate it. The very last song of the episode is also by Future of the Left, and that song is titled the Hope That House Built, and that song was quoted in Paul Tremblay's book, The Cabin at the End of the World, and kind of a nice little tie-in for this episode. I'm really liking this band. It, they're kind of an aggressive, post-punk, kind of a chaotic mess that is melodic and just hits in all the right places. You'll see, they're fucking genius, and it's lovely. It, really, really great. One more thing before we get to the interview... It's time for the... Beer of the Episode. This week's Beer of the Episode is the Turd Ferguson Imperial Brown Ale from Planine Ale House of Escondido, California. Turd Ferguson is a 7.7% alcohol by volume brown ale that would warm the coldest heart even in the depths of diabolical December. Let's give this beer a try. <sighs> it's good. It's a little bitter for a brown. Okay, brown ales usually, and I think I've done this as a beer in the episode before. Brown ales are usually a little bit on the sweeter side. 
this has that a little bit, but it is a, there's a little hint of bitterness with it. It's a beautiful bitterness, I would say. A BB, yeah, beautiful bitterness. It's really good. It is a little strong, too. That beer definitely does warm me up a little bit, warms my heart. So why don't I say this? You can also enjoy this fine beer and many others at Plan 9 Ale House, which is located at 155 East Grand Avenue in lovely downtown Escondido, California. Why don't you give Plan 9 Ale House a call at 760-489-8817 or visit Plan 9 Ale House on the web at www.plan9alehouse.com. Support local, support small business, and a happy holiday season will be had by all or something like that. Well, here we go. Here's part one of the I Want to Party with Bob interview with Paul Tremblay. It is going to commence now. I'd like to welcome Paul Tremblay to the I Want to Party with Bob Bobcast. Thank you so much, Paul, for talking to me tonight. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited. You got it. Great. Okay, well, let's get to know you a little bit better with a couple things right off the bat. This is what I know about you, according to Wikipedia. You're born in Colorado. Yeah, born in Colorado. Only there for like literally 10 months. So it almost doesn't count. Oh, but I guess sure. I, was lit- I was actually born in Colorado. Yeah. My father was in the Air Force and he was stationed out there. And I was born, but then moved back like before I turned one to, to the Beverly, Massachusetts area. So. Gotcha. Gotcha. And you grew up in Massachusetts, still live in Massachusetts to this day, correct? Yeah, yeah, to the point where my first trip back to Colorado was 2018. I, I went to, uh, I was a guest at the Telluride Horror Film Festival, the horror show, they call it. That was oh. great. But I was excited because it was my first time back to Colorado since I was born. Now, you first attended college in Providence, Rhode Island, right? Correct. Providence College. This is a question. I, I've got this this author on my mind constantly lately. H.P. Lovecraft. Were you aware of him when you when you were attending school? No, no, I had no idea. I mean, when I was I was a math major in college, so like, <laughs> I mean, honestly, I mean, I wasn't even like I wouldn't consider myself a reader. You know, when I was in college, I chose Providence College because I liked their basketball team. <laughs> no kidding. Okay, uh, okay, yeah. And it was like my la- the last. I fumbled my way to. A, I started off math education, but screwed a couple parts up, and I became math humanities. And the last class, senior year, second semester, was essentially an English 101 class, which I took sort of to fulfill a humanities thing. And that class turned me into a reader. I mean, that class, I mean, helped change my life, honestly. It helped change one of my, you know, passions. Uh, In that class, I read a Joyce Carol Oates story called Where Are You Going? Where Have You Been? And I'll never forget reading it. Because when I finished reading it, I sort of put it down and and said inside my head, wow, I, I didn't know people wrote things like this. And my professor, you know, was cool and he liked punk music. So, you know, I bonded with him over that. So it was just really like this, you know, cool, I don't know, meeting of the minds that helped turn me into a reader. No kidding. So that was like early 90s, right? The early 1990s. Yeah, I graduated in 93. Yeah. I'm going to fully age myself. I'll, yeah. <laughs> you're only two, you're two years younger than me, so don't feel too bad. Yeah, yeah. Now, did, so you were into <laughs> punk rock right. back. You were into punk rock back in those days? Yeah, I, I was sort of a late bloomer because in high school, I don't know, I, I'm the oldest in my family, so I know a lot of kids discover music either through their friends or through their older siblings. Sure. <laughs> and, you know, I was the oldest, and I didn't really have very many friends in high school. So for me, 
how I discovered music when I was like in middle school, high school was MTV back when MTV actually played videos. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then when I went to college, you know, I got hooked into the radio station and that's how I, you know, found my way into sort of the later punk, you know, who's could do. And I guess what they called alternative them, but I don't really like that term for music now, but right. yeah, I was, I was big in, you know, I, I really liked heavier, heavier indie stuff. I guess I would describe it, you know, definitely, you know, I, I threw myself at the punk, you know, once I discovered it, you know, a little bit after it already sort of happened. <laughs> By the time I discovered Who's Could Do, they'd already broken up. But yeah, so for me, college was, I don't know, blossoming in a lot of ways. Like I found the music that I've, you know, adored and also, you know, discovered reading too. Ah, okay. Okay. As far as Lovecraft goes, he didn't have any kind of influence on your early life or anything like that as far as getting into writing stories that have at least a horror slant. Have you spent any time reading any of Lovecraft stuff through the years after that? Yeah, yeah I have just sort of to, because it's like, oh, these people talk about it. But really, you know, my into horror, I mentioned the Joyce Carol Oates story shortly after that. My girlfriend for my 22nd birthday, and she's now my wife, <laughs> uh, bought me Stephen King's The Stand. Oh, okay. So, I, you know, it was really a combination of reading the Joyce Carol Oates and then reading The Stand. And once I read The Stand, I was like, all right. I went away to grad school for two years and my wife and I did like the long distance relationship thing. So that's where I really, I read all the King and from King, like using his dance macabre as a sort of a guide, you know, I read Peter Straub and Clyde Barker and Shirley Jackson. That's funny. I didn't really, I don't think I read my first Lovecraft until like probably early two thousands, maybe in the middle. And, and I wasn't like a huge, it's never really struck a chord with me. Although I will say I do like, modern authors doing Lovecraftian or cosmic yes, horror more yeah. than I, more than I like Lovecraft. I'm with you um, there. I'm with you there. You know, aside from his xenophobia and racism. Oh my God. Um, yeah. Yeah. His style for me is also still like a hurdle. Uh, yeah. So even though a new England guy, yeah, Lovecraft is sort of didn't find till after, like even after I'd started writing. That's interesting. I shouldn't even say find. I didn't start exploring. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the tie-ins you would think would kind of all be there for you, right? You know, went to Providence <laughs> for college, right? You know, I am Providence yeah. and all that. Grew up in New England, you know, a treasured son, the father of modern horror. And, right. you know, also a huge piece of shit racist and xenophobe. I mean, xenophobe, like insanely <laughs> yeah. big. I mean, it, that's really kind of why I wanted to ask you. It was kind of an, well if he did mean anything to you at any point, what you thought of his, his views, you know, his racism, his, his xenophobia, right. that kind of, and like you, you kind of answered the question. You said it makes it kind of makes it hard for you to really appreciate him in some way. Is that a fair thing to say? Would you think? Yeah. I mean, so like that reputation sort of almost preceded me reading him. So I knew going in, <laughs> you know, ah, pretty, okay. Okay. You know, and I, and I've pretty much only read like sort of the canon works, I suppose. You know, I certainly haven't read everything of his, you know, this might be more of a reflection. I just wasn't aware, but I think like in 93, I'm sure. I mean, I know there were a lot of Lovecraftian fans in the nineties and eighties, but it's not like it is now. I mean, you know, I met a filmmaker in Canada recently and he interviewed me, even though I wasn't a Lovecraftian guy, you know, I just, he happened to be at a convention in Providence and he was doing a a documentary about basically him dealing with Lovecraft because he's from Pakistan originally. So like, you know, the idea that, I loved it as a kid. And then at one point you realize, Oh, wait a minute. He would have hated me. <laughs> right. Um, oh boy. Yeah. But anyway, like I got to see a rough cut of the documentary. It was sort of interesting. And there were some people arguing that like the, the card game or the role playing games were really led to like his sort of explosion, like called Cthulhu. Yeah. 
he's always been like a figure within the horror sort of sphere. But I think in terms of like mainstream cultural explosion that Lovecraft has had, I think that's a pretty compelling argument that it's sort of not because if it's not because of it, at least it's sort of been helped along. Yeah. So I don't know. Lovecraft has always been on the fringe for me, but you know, like I said, I enjoy authors who sort of tweak his stuff, you know, like Victor Laval's Ballad of Black Tom or, or some writers, modern day writers who are considered sort of cosmic horror writers who aren't necessarily writing Lovecraft stories, but what we would call cosmic horror, like Laird Barron, Livia Llewellyn, John Langland. So I don't know. It's cool to see sort of some of those ideas of, you know, that Lovecraft played with uh, like our idea or his idea of our place in the universe, seeing it played with by, with modern horror writers. Sure. When he, when he said that about writers that, that deal with cosmic horror and stuff like that, one of my, another one of my favorite authors is Neil Gaiman. And when he does what it, a study in green, I think was his story, which was a mix between a Sherlock Holmes and a Lovecraft story mm-hmm. was yeah. incredibly great. Yeah. It, it is good to see newer modern authors doing what he did without that side of like xenophobic racism that we don't, you just don't need that in there. It doesn't help, you know, not at all. Now you teach high school level math at a, at a private Catholic school. Is that your, your kind of your, your, your career outside of writing? Yes. And you're also, you're a basketball coach at that same school. Yeah. So typically, I mean, it's a small school. So typically like the teachers are expected to do a couple of clubs or a couple of sports. Yeah, so I've been the JV basketball coach for a long time. Actually, not this year. I told them because of COVID, I'm not going to be coaching indoor basketball. Yeah, so this is the first year in a really long time that I'm not coaching anything. So it's funny, I've been a teacher at that school for as as long as I started writing. So, like, the two are sort of really sort of intertwined for me. Oh, okay. Like, you know, people ask me all the time, how do you do both? I'm like, I don't know. I've always done both. I mean, I will say, I, I do think it's getting harder. You know, I've had the great writer problem of having deadlines now, which I'm not complaining at all. But, sure. you know, before when I was just writing for, you know, the hope that I would sell something slightly different than writing with, you know, I have a contractual deadline. I don't know. And also, like, I think the biggest difference is now the amount of time that I have to spend on social media. Right? I feel like I have to spend online, you know, to promote. It's, you know, become like a necessary thing. Unfortunately. Um, yeah. To I me, know. unfortunately. Yeah. It seems no, like. no. Everybody wrestles with it. But. I'm extra wrestling with it. I don't know because it does like it takes up so much of your time and I know it affects my brain too. And so I don't know. In an, in a, you know, it affects you in a negative way. I mean, even if you're just browsing yeah. through and before you're going to post something, usually you're getting somewhat at least bombarded by a lot of negative stuff. And yeah, it's social media is a necessary evil these days. It seems like, yeah, what I was going to say about, the being a teacher, a high school level teacher, and it's an all boys school too, right? Uh-huh. It's, That's correct. Yeah. It seems like that serves you well in your writing, especially from disappearance at devil's rock, because those three boys, those characters, Tommy, Josh, is it? And Luis, it's Luis, not Lewis, right? Yeah. Luis. And Luis, yeah. Luis. Yeah. You did an extraordinary job of making them seem very real to me. And I go, oh, oh, it makes sense. Well, well, he's a high school teacher. <laughs> he probably knows kids <laughs> almost just like this in some ways. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, like I tell people all the time, like teaching in a high school, it's it's, a, it's an amazing lesson in voice. Like, you know, because even just like, culturally, like young people's slang will, will change every like three to four years. And, and in my school, it even becomes individualized because it is so small. And these kids spend so much time with each other. 
it's fun. I don't know. It's interesting to see like new words that crop up every four or five years with certain classes, you know, it might mean the same thing as a different word four years ago, but yeah, I don't know. So, I mean, if you pay attention to it, it's like, Oh yeah, I can see sort of <laughs> the slang or the language of these guys changing. You know, so like with disappearance of devil's rock, I really took a lot of the slang that was going around my school when I wrote the book, which is what 2015 into 2016, I think. Yeah. yeah. No, 2015 is when I wrote it, you know, hardo and stuff like that. And, it's funny. I remember seeing some reviews and like some readers like, wow, those kids were like, yes, thank you. <laughs> Eighth grade boys are annoying, especially when they're, you know, hanging out with each other. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And then Survivor Song, I mean, I suppose a little bit of a spoiler, but a couple of those characters show up in Survivor Song. Yeah. You know, four, four years past, you know, so I got to change their language a little bit. And actually, the, <laughs> I used some of the language that my son, cause my son got to go to school for free there, which was my big bonus as a teacher. Yeah, so, I don't know. It, it's funny, my, my son cringes when he reads. You know, if you were to read some of the stuff that I put in, but... <laughs> like, well, that's what you guys sound like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, you can't, you can't hear it when you're on the inside. You have to be on the outside to really right. capture that, yeah. you know? Yeah, that's... I was gonna... I'll, I'll ask you about that a little later, too. I appreciated seeing them come back. You have kids of your own. You have two kids, is that right? Because I think you mentioned... One of your kids played Minecraft when you were writing Disappearance at Devil's Rock, too. Yes, I have two kids. As far as what happens to the really kind of the, not necessarily the main character, but kind of the focus of that book is Tommy and what happens to him. And how hard was that for you to write about when you had kids that were around that same age or close to that same age? Yeah, I mean, the, I, I so I turned in a head full of ghosts and... It was a two book deal <laughs> and my editor said, all right, so what's the next book? And like, ah, I don't know. So, you know, that book sort of started with like, okay, what's one of my worst fears right now? And it started with the idea of, you know, as a parent, you know, one of your kids going missing. I will say I really worked to, to divorce myself from thinking of Tommy or, or his sister Kate as my kids. You know, I tried to describe them as totally different kids. If anything, I sort of described Tommy <laughs> like his physical description and even like his emotional description was what I view myself or what I was like as a 13 year old. So I sort of described him as me. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was a little okay. bit easier to put the old me through that as opposed to, you know, my kids. Although Josh and Luis were certainly meant <laughs> were based on like an amalgam of some of my son's friends. I don't know. It's like when I'm doing that, it doesn't really bother me. Maybe it's just because I can see all the gears and, you know, I know the, you know, the parts and I'm trying to fit the parts in. So, and I, and I do it so often. So many of my stories are about kids or about parents or right, yeah. you know, switching on those perspectives. You know, clearly, you know, one, I'm sort of writing what I know a little bit, you know, as a teacher and as a parent. I don't know. I just find those stories kind of fascinating because like being a kid is one of the few universal experiences we all have. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah. And I don't know. I just think there's a lot of just a lot of different ways, a lot of different things you can explore. Yeah. There's that weird, like as a kid, you have that weird, you have that weird hope and fear of the future, right? As a kid, like, like you can't wait to grow older, but I don't know, there's, it's, it's different when you're an adult. There, I feel like the hope is a little bit less and, you know, the fear might be increasing, but. Right, for sure. Um, <laughs> Especially you know, these days. But also like, as a, but also as a kid, like the emotions are so like heightened. I mean, you know, every teenager is almost like a bipolar person just by oh the nature of what they're going through hormonally, you know, the highs and lows. Yeah. And I, and I don't know, like I've joked in the past to some people that like, cause I've never left the kid's calendar <laughs> every year of my life. 
I'm excited in June when school ends and I'm totally depressed in September when school starts. <laughs> I've, never, sure. I've never not had a year be that, in, you know, whether it's as a kid or as an adult, like I went from high school to college, from college to grad school, from grad school to teaching. So I don't know if that may, keeps me thinking like it does, but I find myself always going back to, and it, you know, obviously as I'm getting older, I, I forget specific memories, you know, I'm losing more of those. But I've never forgot like my emotional inner life as a as a kid. For some reason, that's really stays fresh with me. Sure, I'm not sure why. But that's interesting. Now to put it in perspective, in a way, uh, saying, "Yeah, you get summers off, you get you know Christmas break, and that I mean that just adds to the <laughs> excitement and keeping it keeping it like a kid in some ways." Let's do something a little bit different. This is the part where I'm going to test you as far as. <laughs> What kind, if, if you're a mass hole or not now, I know mass hole is not really the nicest word to say to somebody from Massachusetts. And I don't know okay. you well enough to actually say that is how about <laughs> a base stater is a base stater, an actual word that you would call somebody from Massachusetts. You, you'll hear people say base state, but no, I, I, I've never said a base stater. That's a different Massachusetts. Yeah. It's, it you was know, on, I, I Googled it and that's what came sure, up and I'm like, really? Yeah. I've never heard that before. That seems really weird. No, it's just like, you know, people say bean town. Like, no, we don't, no one here calls it bean town. Like, <laughs> right. although somewhat ironically, I actually have beans tonight for dinner, but <laughs> yeah, no, no one around here refers to Boston as bean town. That's sort of like a weird thing too. Like an outsider thing to do or yeah, just some random yeah. thing yeah. or even like a tourist is going to say that. Oh, what are you going to do? Oh, well, I'm going to bean town for the, okay. Are you going to stop yeah. by Cheers while you're there and take a picture? Yeah, you probably right. are. So what we're going to do, we're going to test your knowledge of Massachusetts and Boston kind of in particular in the sense of where do you get the best blank? And they are food. Oh. They are food items. So are you vegan or vegetarian or anything like that? No. Okay, good. No. Okay, that's good. That's a good answer because some of this is definitely not vegan or vegetarian food. So to state for the record, these questions were given to me by a Massachusetts legend, Mr. Al Quint of Suburban Voice Magazine and Sonic Overload Radio. So here's the first one. Okay. Where are the best cannolis in the Boston area, in the greater Boston area? Okay. I mean, it's an easy answer. It's the North End. Uh, I'm not going to be able to give you the exact place just because I'm an impossible eater. Like I'm an annoying mass hole eater <laughs> um <laughs> Thank you. I, I don't i don't i don't like cannolis oh you I, don't oh, i mean okay. it's not like i would spit them out but you know when it comes to like sugary desserts just give me chocolate chip cookies or ice cream okay so you're like, not gonna go you know, out of your way for a cannoli okay i got gotcha, you i got gotcha. you no yeah, no i'm yeah. still yeah i'm still see i'm still a child give me ice cream or give me cookies <laughs> but you, <laughs> you know cannolis tiramisu fancy desserts no no. No kidding. Anyway. Okay, good. But yes, oh. I know the North End would be the place to go. Yeah. That's exactly what he said. Okay, good. I should have put my applause when you get the right answer down, you know. He said the North End and he said Modern Bakery or Mike's in the North End would be two my places that you could go for the best cannolis in town. Yeah. I definitely I've been to Mike's against my will. Oh, you have. Okay. <laughs> is it a real no, is it, it a lovely, popular yeah. place or something? Is it a, a like a crowded oh, yeah, place? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's pretty it's pretty small too. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Gotcha. Now, how about pizza? How about pizza? I know that may not be specifically a Boston thing, but. Well, it's funny. So what is my favorite? I mean, 
part of it is a reflection. I grew up in Beverly, and when I was growing up, we had a place called Capri Pizza, which I loved. And then when I was a little bit older, there was a place called Little Italy. So these are all suburban places. But the fun part about Little Italy is this old couple, old Italian couple, and their sauce is really sweet. Like, again, as a child, oh, as sure. a child, sure. I like really sweet things. And she told my father her secret was she would mix in a little grape jelly in with her sauce. Oh, and that's wow. how like her sauce is like, so sweet. Anyway, uh, what, so Little Italy, I just want to throw a shout out there. Um, more ironically, I live in a town, Stoughton, now, that's somewhat famous for its pizza, Town Spa Pizza, it's called. Hmm. I think it's slightly overrated. You know, if I say that too loudly, I might get thrown out of town. <laughs> it's essentially pubs. It's a, <laughs> it's essentially pub style pizza. So it used to be Sam and Joe's in Danvers. So I'm, I'm not giving you any Boston places. I'm sure there's something in the North End that would be great for pizza. But yeah, um, he said I'm not Ernesto's. Say Regina. I'm not going to say Regina. Ernesto's, oh, that's what he yeah. said. He so said really, he said Regina's. Yeah. He did say Regina's. Yeah, that was one. Yeah, I think we, you know it's okay. Okay, yeah. well, you good. You said Regina. So Regina's could be one that could okay. be in there. So, yeah, you're doing good now. Yeah, I knew. I knew if I talked long enough, I would eventually get to one <laughs> It'll of come out the right. ones that got mentioned. Yeah. You already got points because you didn't say Domino's, you didn't say Papa John's or Pizza Hut. No. You know, so <laughs> no, <I> know. <laughs> no, none of those are worthy of anything. <laughs> so, the last one is fried clams, and this one he gave me kind of a tricky answer to hit what his answer. Who do he thinks a true Bostonian or Boston area resident should say. So fried clams. So for me, it, they just, they just closed down, which is a bummer, but the no name restaurant was on the fish pier. Then there's also Sullivan's 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 on Castle Island in South Boston. That's a great little shack for, for fried clams. Those would be my two answers. So it doesn't sound like a hit on. No, he, he's, he said he's <laughs> okay. He's kind of a snob. He said, <laughs> Uh, sorry, Al, by the way, if you ever listen to this, he said <laughs> the clam box in Ipswich is the place to go. You got to leave town oh, yeah. for no, the best I, clams. Yeah, I've been there. Yeah. Have you? Okay, okay. cool. So I was thinking Boston. I was thinking Boston. <laughs> I know you did good. Uh, there um, is no right or wrong answer, honestly, you know, so you yeah, get yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's, uh, we'll take a break from our current line of questioning. Let's talk a little bit about music based on your tweets, yeah. following me on Twitter, I see you're a fan of Bob Mould. What do you have a favorite era of Bob Mould's music? Would you say that is a hard question? I couldn't answer it myself. I couldn't. I'd say sure. I'd say yeah, all of them. Just give me all of them, and that's my answer. You know. (laughs) Well, it's funny. You know, I I have favorites of like sort of each, you know, of each band and each sort of solo iteration. Like, you know, and some of it's related to like when I first found his music like black sheets of rain i love yeah. that album even though i think objectively it's yeah you know it's probably not its best it's really sort of slow tempoed right you know which isn't in and of itself but that sort of makes it a little bit different than some of his other stuff but, know, new day rising for me was the first album uh, you know of bob obviously that's who she could do so i mean that remained the favorite just because that was the first one yeah but i really beaster or actually sugar's beaster it might be my favorite, which is weird. I mean, obviously, Copper Blue is the big one. I love Copper Blue. Right, yeah. But I love that EP. Bob um, Beaster's one of the best. Well, probably you just made major points with me. That's by far my favorite Sugar yeah. record. I like File Under Easy Listening a lot, too, but Beaster. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just hit me right at the right time, yeah. at the right spot. Yeah, that's a – anyways, thank you. Yes, I'll give you applause without even like, the machine uh, there. Yeah. <laughs> 
I know, and Bob's sort of like current like band, like well, it's Jason, I forget their names, and um a drummer from like Super Chunk, right? Yeah, John John um, Worcester. John Worcester. Yeah, John Worcester. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. No, I mean Sankey's been with these guys almost as long as Husker do or maybe even longer. Uh, like in terms of like in terms of length of time, it's really been since 2011, right? Some, I think Jason has been with him since um, 2005. Yeah. And four and four or five albums right. with, with and then, uh, and, those guys. So. Right. And then John, I think came on for silver age. So yeah, you know, this run that he's on right now is, is pretty great. It's funny. Even though I already own almost every CD, I think I own 20 of the 24. I, I still bought the disc, the discography collection that he just put out this October. And it's, you know, everything he's done since who's could do. And there's 24 discs. You know, it starts with Workbook, Black Sheets of Rain, and works all the way up through Sunshine Rock. And then the last four CDs are, one's going to be like a compilation of other songs that I haven't, I haven't got to it yet. So I'm slowly working my way through all, wow. you know, 24 in order. And that's been kind of fun for me to, to like, especially to some of the older discs, like it just brought me right back to the time when I was listening to it. You know, it's sort of like the fun thing about music that as a writer, I don't think you, you give the same experience to people as, or maybe... Maybe you do if they reread a book that you wrote a long time ago. But, you know, for, for so many of us, I think if you listen to a certain album or certain songs, it brings you back to when you first heard them. I don't know. And then you get to hear it now. So it's like a, a cool, because <laughs> I don't want to make it seem like a nostalgia thing because I'm sort of anti-nostalgia. Uh, but I like, I'm more like juxtapositions. I like there you comparing, go. There you, you know, go. what I first thought of it when I heard it. And, you know, when I'm, you know, now that I'm listening to it now, I definitely feel like I got, enjoyment out of more of the songs that I used to just sort of skip over, you know, and that just reflects, you know, my own set of new experiences and stuff like that. So yeah. Anyway, I think Bob fan would be hard to pick, but in terms of things, I'll, I'll end by saying the things I've most listened to, you know, New Day Rising and Zen Arcade, Beaster, and probably, you know, workbooks. I used to, <laughs> my wife and I used to go to bed and put work on. Like we would leave it on and go to sleep every night. Like when we first moved in together. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, so this is not a ton of times too. So yeah, I don't know. More about music. What are some of your other favorite bands other than Bob Mould? Other than that one thing that I kind of caught. Oh, so, um, a bad religion is definitely a favorite. Ah, cool. Uh, geez, I'm trying to think, you know, I used to, well, Buffalo Tom, like from those early 90 eras, you know, I play guitar, so I'm trying to think of the songs that I, I usually play. Oh, <laughs> great. Okay. Big fan of the band Clutch. They're from Maryland. They've been around forever. Hell, uh, so like more on the metal side of things, uh, I really like the band Helmet. Oh, Pete Hamilton cool. was the lead guitarist, lead singer. More recently, there's a, a British sort of punk, post-punk band called Future of the Left. Future of the Left. They've been around since like yeah, the mid 2000s. So bigger, certainly bigger in England than they are here in the U.S. There was a band called McCluskey first, and a Andy Falcus is sort of like the main thread there. Andy Falcus was in McCluskey. They actually had a, an album called McCluskey Does Dallas that you know did really well in the U.K. Did, did pretty well here in the U.S. Like Steve Albini produced it, kind of thing. And then after McCluskey broke up, uh, Falcus formed Future of the Left. And it's just, you know, loud, angry, but also sort of funny, like insanely genius lyrics. You know, he's just like this hyper-intelligent, angry Brit, <laughs> Andy. Nice. Uh, lovely guy to talk to. So I was going to say, like, at this point, is a good segue. One of my favorite things I've done with my writing is that I playfully stalk a lot of my favorite musicians. Oh, cool, cool, um, cool, cool. 
able to make contact and even become, you know, friends with like a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of them, which has been amazing. Like, so Andy and I are friends now. Like I met him because I wanted to quote from a lyric at the beginning of the head full of ghosts. I'm sorry to interrupt. At the very end of Head Full of Ghosts, you you listed a bunch of the bands you just mentioned. Are you said Clutch was there, Future <laughs> yeah. of the Left, and I go, oh, okay. So that gave me an idea because yeah. I'm going to be looking for a couple songs to play during this, kind of in between, like in the middle and at the very end. Say, hey, these are, you know, oh, these sure, are some yeah, of the yeah, bands yeah. that he likes and all that. So that's great. No, absolutely, yeah. So like and the cool part is like so many of these musicians like are, are big readers and they love books. And that's what I found out. Like, they're like, Oh cool. Hey, you know, I offered to send a book and you know, like Neil Fallon's a super nice guy. He's a big science fiction fan. And a couple of times Neil has left me like, you know, backstage passes and, you know, I've gone and hung out with him a couple of times, you know, same with Neil, uh, or Paige Hamilton of helmet. Yeah. So like, it's funny when I've gone to LA a few times, I've had since Paige has had me come to some shows when I'm at a literary festival out in LA, like I leave a pass for him and he comes and hangs out with the authors and I don't know. It's just kind of fun. You know, it's sort of, it soothes the, the frustrated musician in my soul. <laughs> <laughs> sure. You know, if I had my druthers, if I had my druthers, I would have been a, you know, a successful punk, you know, or indie metal guitarist or something, right. but it didn't work out that way. Fate had something <laughs> else in mind for you, I think. So, well, that's good. You're also kind of doing like yeah. a cross-cultural exchange, you know, bridging the gap between <laughs> literary and the music world in some ways. That's really, that's good. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Now, here's a question about another Boston or Massachusetts related thing. I'm going to give you the names of a couple of bands and you have to pick one. Okay, okay, and here's the rules for this one. You got to pick one, and you can't have anything to do with the other one ever again. You can't ever listen to them again. So you oh, got to no. really make this okay. count. Okay, this is very serious. The, yes. Okay. okay, so breathe. Okay, the Pixies <laughs> or the Cars? I would say the Pixies or the Cars. Um, I enjoy both, but it would have to be the Pixies. Okay, okay. I, th- I figured you would say that. Yeah. I, that's a tough one for me, too. <laughs> Aerosmith or Boston? You got to pick the two that are totally obvious. Aerosmith or Boston? Yeah, uh, yeah. So I ultimately would matter, but I, you know, when I was in high school, I had a Boston phase, and I never had an Aerosmith phase, so I, I would choose Boston. Boston. Okay, good. Okay, yeah. all right. Okay, and the last one. Okay, these are more of the uh, uh, later days heroes here of uh-huh. of Boston. Mighty Mighty Boston's or the Dropkick Murphys. Or the Dropkick Murphys. Oh. Yeah. Just, I would go with the Dropkick Murphys. Okay. I was hoping okay. for a mission of Burma. I was hoping for a mission of Burma question. I should have done that. I, that was one of the choices too. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll we'll yeah. we'll ad lib. Yeah. Well, mission to Burma or the Lemonheads. One of those. Which one of those two? Uh, yeah, mission to Burma. Mission to Burma. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, I would pick that too. I think uh, Evan Dando is pretty great. You know, I mean. But I could live yeah. without it. I could live without it. I think Mission to Burma has more <laughs> to offer in a lot of ways, you know? Yeah, but definitely. I think the Pixies and the Cars question would be the toughest one out of all those, honestly. Yeah, no, I would feel, you know, it's a bummer to, to have no Cars, but... Right. I'm definitely, I've listened to the Pixies way more, and, you know, the Cars' first album is really where I would be like, oh, yeah, I like those more sort of rock-based songs. <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> you know, right. But, you know, the Pixies, you know, I have all three, or, no. Is it four of their studio albums, I guess? Yeah, Jennifer I think because they did one Little. last one before they, after yeah, they reformed, I, I, right. right? Not the new one. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, that's the last one I have is Trump, Bill Mullen, you know, their last one before they oh, okay, broke up in okay. the 90s. Okay, right, gotcha, yeah. gotcha, gotcha. You didn't like that, their newest record? You're not a big fan of their the kind I of I didn't even listen to it. I, I don't know. I, I haven't either. It's funny. I like some of Black, I like I like the uh, Black Francis and the Catholic stuff. I thought those were yeah. really cool sort of rock albums. But yeah. for some reason, I wasn't, I don't know, I wasn't tempted to go listen to the new Pixies, quote unquote, new Pixies. Kim Deal wasn't involved, was she? She, uh, no, no, it was uh, Kim Shattuck from the Moths came in, right? And then they they kicked her out for stage diving at a show. She took off our uh, took off her base and jumped out into the crowd. And the next day, band's management called her in and said, "Hey, uh, we don't. That's not the type of behavior we want to see with a member in this band. You're fired." And she was like, "Really? Are you?" She was like, "Are you really serious? Okay." Well, I don't want to be in a band that won't let me do something like that, you know? So weirdest, weirdest thing ever. Uh, let's go leave the musical world and go back to books and writing. Okay. The latest novel, your latest novel, Survivor Song, it, that got published in July of 2020, right? That's when it was actually released. Correct. Yes. When did you start writing that book? I think is unless if it's a secret, you know, <laughs> you don't want anybody to know. And I hope you don't say, oh, I, I finished yeah. it in like 2005 because holy shit. Yeah, no. 
you need to get a job as a uh, 900 number psychic in that case or something <laughs> in some ways, you know? Yeah. Well, I got the idea for the book in July of 2018 and it sort of started with like a zombie. What if, you know, I wouldn't necessarily call the book a zombie book, zombie adjacent, zombie ish, maybe. Yeah. Zombie adjacent. Um, that's zombie adjacent. Yeah. Perfect. That's great. That's great. <laughs> yeah. And I spent the next sort of like 13 months writing it. So I turned in like the draft, really nothing major changed after this. Like I turned in my, my draft to my editor, August 15th of 2019. I don't remember the date because that was the day it was due in the middle of the month. Wow. So I turned it in the day it was due. I've never missed a deadline. Not the you know, and then I had like a month or two of edits, but really turned in the final version in November of 2019. And to the point where like they had printed review copies in late December, or early January of 2020. Wow. Wow. And you know, I get asked all the times like, no, I, I didn't change anything. <laughs> I couldn't, it was already printed. You know, there was nothing that COVID informed the book. Yeah. So it's, I don't know. I mean, obviously everybody has, is having a weird, awful experience living through COVID and, you know, just for me having a book come out during COVID and having a book be like sort of, you know, a pandemic book or an epidemic book that in a lot of ways sort of, you know, if it doesn't fully mirror what we're, we're going through, I mean, it's close enough that like when you're reading it, it makes you think about it more. I absolutely. Suppose, you know? Yes. Yes. Like, absolutely. Yeah. So yep. The weird part for me is like, God, there were so few people that read this before COVID life. Like it's like, I'm curious as oh, how, what would have their reaction would have been, you know? Right. Cause it's funny to read like people, you know, people they're so, because we're so in it now and I totally get it. Like, and this is not a spoiler. There's a part in the book where I mentioned, you know, this is not the end of Massachusetts. It's not the end of the United States. You know, I tell people, you know, in the book purposely, cause I didn't want to write, this is not an apocalyptic novel. You know, part of the idea was, and part of the reason why I wanted to write it was like, here's a, an outbreak book where it's not the end of the world, where I'm not going to lovingly detail like the total destruction of society, et cetera. You know, and within that part, like I, I mentioned, and like at the end of this, you know, 10,000 people have died. And the book is only in Massachusetts. I mean, that's where the virus hit. Yeah. You know, like if you read the book closely, it's like, it doesn't say it's gone to other states. It's, it's all in Massachusetts. But I totally understand. Like when you read it now, you're just thinking, you know, the whole country and like, some people have been like, oh, get in your head. You're so under, you know, kind of the death. I'm like, well, well, I'm glad I undercounted it, but also <laughs> it was just Massachusetts, not just Massachusetts. But I don't know. It made for a dark day in November when Massachusetts hit 10,000 deaths COVID yeah. death, for me, frankly. Sure. Or, you know, just so weird. You know, and the other part of it, like, you know, I, I did research, if you don't mind me rambling. Well, the, the medical research I did, my sister is a nurse in one of the biggest hospitals in Boston. Uh, she's only a year younger than me. We're very close. She lives in Dedham. Actually, I used her, her house's part of the setting of the head full of ghosts. So I've used my sister quite a bit oh, okay. <laughs> for my books. I should probably pay her a royalty. <laughs> so now, so when I had this idea, I was like, I also knew I didn't want to focus on like the national CDC response to this virus. I wanted like, what would it look like for Nord hospital or, you know, these suburban hospitals, the local, I want to see what the local response would be. So, you know, I went to my sister and asked her a bunch of questions and, you know, and she got me her hospitals like emergency plan, which is really interesting. And, I think the biggest thing that made the book feel like now was that my, in 2014, during the Ebola outbreak, you know, in the United States, we didn't have very many. I think there was like 11 patients. Obviously in Africa, it was huge and all. But while it was happening, you know, there was a time where I think a lot of us were getting really nervous. Like, oh my God, is, are we going to have like this big Ebola outbreak in the U.S.? And, yeah. You know, her hospital, 
emailed nurses and staff and said, Hey, you know, we're going to be one of the hospitals that will take patients if we get them. And here's our plan. And here's your training. It was a PDF and like a 15 minute PowerPoint presentation. Oh, wow. Then that they told them like, you know, we don't have enough personal protection equipment or PPE, you know, acronym PPE. And you'll have to just wear two gowns and like duct tape your sleeves. And they're like, what? <laughs> and so like for people that read the book, there's a text exchange early on in the book between one of the characters, Dr. Ramola Sherman and her coworkers. And they're all sort of freaking out about the issues with this pandemic, including, you know, lack of PPE. And I remember like re so my sister shared those texts with me. She'd save them for whatever reason. And, and luckily, let me just finish that story. Luckily, we didn't have the Ebola outbreak. And right. also luckily, like her hospital sort of came to its senses and sent, like a few days later after I'm sure they heard a bunch of like people screaming, like, what are you, what are you talking about? They came back and said, okay, you know, we'll, we'll only take volunteers and you know, they'll have hazmat suits or whatever. Yeah. So anyway, for the book, she had saved this text exchange between herself and coworkers, you know, freaking out about the prospect of, having to deal with Ebola while not being properly protected. And really it almost went into the, my book verbatim. I remember sort of rewriting it and thinking, do I have to explain what PPE is? <laughs> you know, right. how am I going to do that within the text? And obviously, you know, when, when the book comes out, you don't have to, because that's become part of the cultural, you know, lexicon. Now. Yeah. It's something that we know and think about all the time now. So yeah. yeah, it's constantly on our minds. It seems like. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the other part of the book that's been really weird. I mean, I'm proud of the book. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't write it now. I'm glad I wrote it before. <laughs> yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, you know, I wouldn't want to write about but what, you know, our health community has to go through now. You know, and obviously, so like the books, when we first like hit, when the shit first hit the fan in March for us, like when we first went into quarantine, I was like totally freaked out. Like in a meta, like most people, like in a metaphorical, uh, you know, fetal position on the couch. I was barely watching the news. I was watching Mythbusters reruns just to try to shut my brain off. Right. You know, because I was, you know, worried about my sister. And like, and I'm supposed to talk about this book in which one of the joys was I got to work with my sister so much with research. And now it's like happening to her. It was just very fucked up. Oh, that's you insane. Know, swearing, yeah, but. yeah. <laughs> wow, I had no idea. That's, yeah. I was, that was one of the questions too is, where did you get all this? Because very, very detailed and very accurate seeming medical, you know, information and and it was like wow I, you you really did your research for this that's so great it was your sister but also not so great <laughs> considering what's going on with covid and the fear and anxiety that both of you i'm sure have to deal yeah. with with what she's going through so i just felt like when you it you know because like you said now i barreled through it in two days i got it i read it over the weekend and i the stuff about mm -hmm. the ppe and i go oh man like wow I had no idea it actually went back to the Ebola thing and them being scared that they weren't going to be covered then and sure. look at what's going on now. And then you also kind of made little jabs kind of at the ineffective response of the government and kind of like the do nothing president sure. in the white house. And it was like, Oh God, that hits so <laughs> yeah. close to home right now, you know, Holy cow. That part of it. I mean, I, I didn't think it would be that hard to predict. <laughs> You're yeah, right. Uh, right. You know, you know, Trump would have, you know, the Trump administration would not do well with the reaction to this kind of thing. I mean, if anything, I way underestimated how awful it would be. I think we all. Yeah. You know, similarly, yeah. with, you know, for, for for a few novels now, I've feel like besides like parents, kids, like one of my 
well, another one of my obsessions has been for a long time as a writer, both information, the data glut, and also misinformation. Like a head full of ghosts, you know, for anyone that's read it, it's a ambiguous take on a possession story. And I never tell you if, if the daughter is possessed or not. And it's, you know, or most ambiguous works, it's I'm withholding information from you, but yes. hopefully I think what makes a head full of ghosts different is instead I go the opposite direction. I bombard you with data. Like I overload you with all this information, so much information. Now you don't know what to do with it. You don't know what's real. Like you don't know what's, what's yeah. Yeah. You yeah. don't know what's real because that's sort of like, you know, what we're living in. So, you know, I've been obsessed forever with the idea of overload of information and misinformation, you know, in the cabinet in the world, you know, I make reference to the novel before survivor song. There's a group of people who may or may not be quote unquote targeted individuals, you know, people who believe that, you know, the government's out to get them and conspiracy theories, et cetera. So yes, in survivor song, there are some, you know, ultra right wing conspiracy not to, you know, have like racist theories behind the virus and, right. you know, you know, believe it was started, you know, by other people. So again, I didn't think that was hard to predict. If anything, you know, again, I think I, I certainly didn't predict how mainstream it would become right. <laughs> in our country. So it still yeah, seemed like so, it was kind of a fringe, like a very small group of people in Survivor Song that were these weird fringe believers, like, oh, the UN's right. already here. That's that line yeah, where the guy you yeah. called you called Tree, I think, said, Oh, yeah. like, how did the UN get here already? And it's like, oh, dude. I've seen you on Facebook. Yeah. I've seen these guys talk on Facebook. <laughs> like, oh, right. it's so it's too real. It's too real at this point. You know, that was that was yeah. the other thing. You know, them saying those militia guys saying it's a deep state plot. Like, holy shit! Yeah, you called that one, man. <laughs> I mean, boy, and for it being something that, like you said, is like a not really a zombie novel, but not really not a zombie novel in some ways. You know to have so many things that tied into what we're going through now was a sh either a stroke yeah. of like the greatest fortune or the, 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 or just, <laughs> Oh no, why did I, how did, how did this happen yeah. to me? You know, I don't I know. Think, yeah. The other thing that's happened to the book, which is I mean, for me as a writer is interesting. Obviously I would prefer none of this had happened. So sure. 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 <laughs> I in reality, any, I would, I would right, give anything right. for it not to have happened, but in a weird way, I view the novel as, as more hopeful than when I first finished it. And I think, and I think, you know, listeners out there, you know, hopefully you know, if you choose to read it, it's not going to be just like this soul crushing slog. You know, I do think, you know, there's some hope at the end of it, just by the very fact that, you know, I, you know, I do tell you that, you know, the virus eventually is sort of overcome. Yeah. Um, and to me, that makes the, the story of the two characters, hopefully more poignant because it's, you know, for, for some of the characters that don't live to me, it's almost more tragic because oh, they could have just hung on for a few more weeks. Right. Yeah. But anyway, so I won't say too much about the, the prologue, what happens at the very end. But it's been interesting to see readers' reaction to the prologue as being, you know, one of my, I guess, one of my more hopeful endings. Absolutely. Um, and that was something I was going to mention yeah. to you, too, is, you know, thank you for that. Because it was like, <laughs> it was like, oh, I finished it last night. And I, I was like, oh, yeah. oh, that was, oh, I feel. That was great, you know, like <laughs> now, yeah. now I have a bone to pick with you about a couple other things that I want to ask you about. Uh. Of, of, of course, of course. What I wanted to say is the endings of, okay, Survivor Song and Disappearance at Devil's Rock. And if these are kind of spoilerish, I will cut it out. No, that's okay. Those had very clear to me, very clear 
res everything got kind of resolved. I didn't have any questions at the ends of those books. And, uh -huh. that's, and that's great. I mean, to have a book like that. Fantastic. So many books are like that, but a head full of ghosts in the cabin at the end of the world, you're kind of going, especially head full of ghosts. You're kind of going, what just, what did I, what, ha what happened? And that <laughs> is beautiful because guess what? I mean, especially I'll say in my case, I still think about that book and I read it, I think three years ago, two or three years ago. Oh, and I still yeah. think about it all the time. Like I'll, it's on my bookshelf. Right. And I walk by and I go that, that fucking book. God. Damn. Okay. Yeah. So what was really, you know, like what was really going on? And then same thing with <laughs> cabinet, at the end of the world was like, yeah. Holy crap. You know, have you gotten any angry feedback from fans or people saying like, why the hell did you do that to me? And, and like see, people who were like kind of seriously upset at the courses that those books took and that there was no oh, yeah. real resolute, no answers <laughs> kind of thing. Right. Well, I think there's a difference between no answers and no resolution. Oh no. Especially for cabin. I definitely underestimated when I wrote cabin, I figured most people would assume sort of one interpretation of the ending. Uh, I definitely underestimated <laughs> how many people would be upset that I don't tell the the reader whether or not the world is ending or it isn't. Yes. And there's um, whole, there are re-edit threads all about that. So don't, yeah, do, so, I mean, I, I avoid all that don't. stuff. Good man. No. Dude, don't, yeah, um, don't, don't do it. <laughs> no. So, but as sort of a rebuttal, I mean, with, with the head full of ghosts, if you're going to use ambiguity, particularly at the novel length, I mean, there has to be a reason it's, you know, I would, I would hopefully think even the people who didn't enjoy those books would realize that it wasn't a gimmick that the ambiguity is part of the horror of both of those stories. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. I, yes, and, and, yes. And with the head full of ghosts, it's part of the point. It's, it's the horror of not knowing it's, it's the horror to me that reflects, you know, it reflects both identity and, and existence itself. We, we just don't know. We, what is this? We don't know. And that's, and that's reflected, I think in both books. And honestly, <laughs> and maybe this is presumptuous, and me being an ass <laughs> on my part, but I think for so many readers in the United States who, who cannot think outside of their sort of uh, Christian outlook or, you know, cause that's the, you know, the majority of, of people in the U S you know, have been brought up in the Judeo Christian sort of tradition. Sure. And I'm sort of purposely playing with that. Like the idea that so many people, whether they, whether they can admit it to themselves or not, just want to believe I'm going to heaven. This is, this is what's happening. Like there is something after life and after death. And I honestly think that in both books where the ending sort of fucks with that purposefully and is left without that, without knowing, I think people just really get upset and can't handle it. Very good. <laughs> I, I, wow. I, I could, I don't know. Cause that I'm stuttering at this, but I don't know. It's hard to say like, if we objectively look at the books, I'm not going to say they're objectively great books. But I don't know. I, I would certainly argue for what I just said. I think that for some people, like their strong negative reactions to the ambiguity is because I don't know. You have a hard time. You have a hard time with that ultimate question: what happens after the death? Or you have a hard time admitting that what when we die is the ultimate ambiguity, and you don't really know. No one knows. You can believe something, sure, but you don't know. <laughs> you don't. I don't. I don't. I don't. So I don't know. So with a head full of ghosts, as I said, it was you know. To me, that was part of the horror. And for me, for Kamathy in the world, without, I guess, getting too spoilery, even though somewhat spoilery, uh, 
the story becomes, what's the choice? What's the choice that Josh, or not Josh, I'm mixing my characters. What's the choice that Eric and Andrew are going to make? That's the story. That becomes a story. doesn't matter if the world actually ends or not. Uh, I mean, that makes me fucking crazy as a, <laughs> if I'm allowed to complain <laughs> about one reaction to my book, honestly, like, oh, seriously, you like, like I said in my, in the paperback version of Cabin, I said, Hey, if you want to add an, add an, add a line to the book, then the world ended, then the world didn't end. It doesn't matter that their, their choice is the story. Like what choice are they going to make? Right. Right. They, they've already suffered an apocalypse. Like whether the world ends or not, their world has been definitively shattered. Yes. Either way, the story is the choice. He, they chose, you know, I won't say what they chose. The choice is the story. And it just blows me away that, you know, adults can't handle that. <laughs> I'll tell you, you know, and I'll use this as a metaphor. Uh, look at Star Wars fans. You know, yeah. there's, there's, there are times you can't do anything right. You know, especially, and I think it's a perfect the way you said it, especially people in the United States being, they want to know a definitive answer one way or the other. Well, God damn me. If I have to actually think, and this makes me grow as a person reading something that makes me think and makes me think. And, and like you said, the horror is not knowing in head full of ghosts. And the whole, the story is, what are those guys going to do in cabin at the end of the world? Like, my God, that was a powerful story. And that again, yeah. the child, the child in that really, to me, brought the horror home even more, you know? And, uh, something I wanted to, I think I was trying to get at way back there about children and books and stuff like that. Uh-huh. I recently talked to Nathan Ballengrud, who he has written a few stories. I know you at the end of, uh, growing things, you referred to North American Lake Monsters and Wounds as recommended books kind yes. of things. Yep. He's an ama- amazing author, right? Amazing author, yeah. I consider you and him and a few other, like uh, uh, Victor Laval and Al Makatsu, kind of this whole group of my like very beloved newer group of authors, kind of like you're all kind of lumped into this fantastic new generation of writers, Hard right? Those guys, yeah. Nathan said his response to me saying like, how do you, how do you put these kids in these situations in these books? And he said, because of his daughter, and I'm paraphrasing because of his daughter, it kind of helped him exercise that fear from himself to actually write it down. Like the bad things that could happen, you know, he kind of, mm-hmm. he kind of purged it from himself, but uh, that was going back quite a ways. You know, I was just kind of talking about yeah, yeah, like yeah. the when character and cabin also, sure that fear that those two parents have for what could happen to her is like, Oh, that's like the over for me. That was the overwhelming factor and the, fo- the whole focus of the story. Like we're what's going on with her. What's going to happen to her. What's going to happen to her. Yeah. And, and, and that again, that, that was a very powerful book. That's all I'm going to say. Thanks. And yeah, that was a great, I, I love your answer for that saying that was the story was between those two guys. That's yeah. Absolutely beautiful. Yeah. So no, I mean, so I, mean, I don't want to be accused, but like, obviously every author is going to argue for their book. And I mean, just because I don't know, it's hard because, you know, obviously you, you want readers to have their own interpretations, you know? And I mean, that's sort of the compact. That's the deal, right? You write a book, you put it out there, you know, that, that's my say on the book kind of thing. So I would never like outside of a forum like this, where we're discussing it, like, you know, say, Hey, this is how you're supposed to view the book. So I don't know. I mean, you're reading it the wrong way. You're not reading it the right way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
I mean, that's the fun of reading books, right? You get to talk about like the different ways. There's so many different kinds of readers. You know, there are plenty of like really smart, brilliant people who want books that are just not, I don't mean to say just as a, as a descriptor, but plenty of brilliant people who want books that are, you know, all plot, right? And there are plenty of like great readers and brilliant people who want stories that are plotless and, and, you know, focus on the character and do all this other stuff. So, I mean, I know all that's there. I don't know. I, I keep coming back though to, to, you know, the idea of, you know, in the country that we live in and I don't know, getting to meet people from other countries, like really for the first time, maybe, you know, within the last 10 years, I've become friends with, you know, people from Europe and Australia and other, you know, in other countries. And, and it sort of hit me one day. It's like, wow, like just in talking to them, like how like religion isn't as a part of their everyday lives Yeah, for the yeah. most part, as, as it is here, it's just everywhere. It's so pervasive. And, you know, even as we're supposedly quote unquote, becoming more secular, <laughs> I mean, that's not being what's presented certainly on one side of the political aisle, for example, it's, I don't know, it's just so bizarre. So I don't know. Like, I mean, part of me as a punk fan and, you know, you know, as a punk music fan, like, it's sort of inbred contrarianism. Certainly, <laughs> I don't know. I like yes, the idea yes. of, of, you know, I think the job of horror is to tweak, is to tweak conventional wisdom, you know, to transgress the tweak, you know, the cultural norms. And one of the biggest cultural norms is, Oh, we know where we're going to, where we're going to, uh, we know where we're going when we die. <laughs> yeah. You know, so why not play with that? <laughs> you know, as often as we can. Anyway, I'm I'm still rambling. I'm still that's great. No, that, no, that's absolutely great. That, that flag that I planted somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was one of the things I was going to ask you here coming up towards the yeah. end. As far as Catholicism goes and faith and, and your beliefs, I mean, you teach at a Catholic school. Did you grow yeah. up religious or do you have any kind of faith or religious beliefs at all yourself? Yeah, so it's weird. I've been in, a, in and around Catholic institutions for the majority of my life. But no, I would consider myself atheist agnostic, you know, and growing less <laughs> agnostic, you know, more towards the other as I get older. So as a kid, you know, my parents are both Catholic, but I think I made it to my first confession. Was that seven years, seven years old, I believe uh. that was sort of the last, last official thing that I did. Maybe it was like nine years old. Seven is probably like first communion or something like that. So like when I was really young, you know, we used to go to church and then we stopped like from, I was nine through high school. You know, I went to Providence College, which is a Catholic school, but, you know, I didn't choose it because it was Catholic. I, I, you know, I'm not joking when I said I chose it because I liked their basketball team. I had no idea <laughs> what I wanted to do for, you know, for college. And then the school I teach at just happened. I, you know, I got hired like two weeks before the school year started. <laughs> and, you know, and part of it's like, I've just been there because it's been a really good place to teach. You know, I like my, you know, like my coworkers and um, they've done right by me. You know, I think teaching at a religious school in, in New England is probably, and this is me maybe being somewhat bigoted toward like the South or other areas of the country, but like I think teaching in a religious school here is, would be different than teaching, you know, somewhere else sure, in the country. Sure, sure. Where it's still Massachusetts, it's still even sort of our, I mean, it's starting to, to not be that way, but you know, like even sort of our Republican side of things are more liberal socially than other places in the country. Yeah, if that makes oh, sense. sure. Sure. Yeah. You know, so anyway, you know, I teach math. It's not like, you know, I, I teach math. I don't have to deal with, you know, teaching religion or, or anything like that. There's nothing so. open to interpretation there. You're teaching straight facts. No, that can't yeah, be argued. Yeah. And my school or... has been, right. 
Yeah, and my school's been fine with my writing, which is cool, very supportive. That was the other question, too. How do they feel about your yeah. the subject matter of your books in some cases? Yeah, know? so honestly, for me, it's just like it becomes, it's it's all, it's total background. Like, I, I don't notice it just because it's almost like part of the, if I would love to hear me say this, but I mean, it's just part of like the setting. It's part of like the wallpaper. It's wallpaper. Like, I don't notice it. I mean, when it's there every day, I don't notice it. Sure. But to the point where it's weird, like sometimes like, oh yeah, you know, like when we get up on Sunday, it's weird to me that millions of people go off to church on Sunday. Like that's just not a thought in our house. It's sort of a weird existence. So Catholicism has always been sort of this thing, this cultural thing for me, but certainly, you know, not, as a, not a part of my faith or, you know, I wouldn't necessarily describe myself as having a faith. Gotcha. Okay. You know, I sort of, I, I playfully describe myself as agnostic athe- atheist 98% of the time. And then, I don't know, 2% of the time. And the 2% <laughs> of the time is usually, you know, uh, when I wake up in the middle of the night after a terrible nightmare, you know, then maybe I believe there's, you know, sure. supernatural ghosts or something. And then the next next day I wake up, I'm like, oh, what a, I'm such an idiot. That's, what's the old expression? There's uh, no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole or something like that, right? In a foxhole, yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> so that that was, then. okay, That you just kind of led into the next question. One of the things I talk about on this thing a lot and I'm also very fascinated by the paranormal, paranormal in, in the real world, quote unquote, uh, you know, what are your thoughts on the paranormal? Do you believe in ghosts or, you know, to, to put it so plainly, do you believe in anything in the yeah. paranormal might be real or not? I, like, most of I would say like the vast majority of the time, no, but at the same time, you know, if you said, Hey, you're going to go stay overnight by yourself in a, you know, this boarded up, mental hospital I'd be like fuck no i'm not doing that so <laughs> don't blame you i don't yeah, blame I, I don't i don't want my beliefs to be proved wrong I, maybe would be the one way to look at it but sure. no i've been a card carrying scaredy cat afraid of the dark my whole life so it's like i don't know i think as a writer especially in novels there's that rational part of my brain that's always fighting with the lizard part right right you know sure. and that's the sure. hardest part to overcome all the time it's, it's hard to overcome fear in the and it's usually irrational fear that you're, you're trying to overcome. So, yeah. So I would say, you know, right, you know, when I'm asked that question, I'm usually like, no, I don't believe in ghosts. I scoff at it. But if I'm home by myself at night <laughs> and I hear a noise, I'm sleeping with the light on, you know, <laughs> <There> it's, you <laughs> until the next day, you know, so I've never experienced anything. You know, I've had friends, you know, tell stories, you know, if I were to try to explain it away, I'd say, Oh, maybe, you know, I feel I've been reading a lot more about sort of like sub, like super low frequency waves and how that messes with your head. Sure. How that occurs, how that can and does occur naturally too. And I was like, Oh, that could go to explain a lot of strange things experienced in the mountains of Alaska or, or something like that. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I'd be more willing to go like the science side of thing that like there's multiverses and maybe there's like these weird <laughs> intrusions. And then like you an know, overlap ghost, between the two. It's just like some, yeah, or if it's like something physics that has yet to prove yet, you know, I don't know. You call it ghost, maybe it's the weird multiverse. I don't know. That's an interesting perspective. That's the first time I've ever heard anybody out of that. I've asked that question probably fifty to a hundred uh-huh. times, and that's the first time I've heard anybody say that. That's very interesting. That's because the multiverse thing is <laughs> okay. is something that could be that they talk about a lot. Like, well, it's something that's very possible, right? So. You know, we just don't have any way that we don't really know right now, but it's, it's something that they think might even be likely more than just possible. Isn't that right? Or might even be able to prove it. Sure. Yeah. 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 
Wow, I like that. I like that a lot. I just like to say, you know, because I'm a, I'm a total skeptic too. You know, I'm like, I don't know. I just say, I don't know, but I'm trying to figure it out. I try not to be obnoxious about it. Like I would clearly say we don't know everything. Science doesn't know everything. I certainly don't know everything, but I try not to have like the supernatural be my first jump to what the answer or the solution. That's kind of why we're at where we're at now, you know, with so much of the right wing and power <laughs> and all that is because they go superstition first, science yeah. second, you know, and it's like, no, no, no. That's how people die. You know, that's how witches got burned at the stake, man. We don't need that shit anymore in <laughs> our lives. Science is yeah. there for a reason. Yeah, because sci- science first, superstition second is probably the best policy you can absolutely have, I would say. So, well, great. I think that's really about all I had for you tonight. I mean, I have a million more questions, but I think we're good. I did want to <laughs> ask you. Okay. I've talked to Bob Mould's people kind of a couple times as far as getting them on for an episode. Is there anything you would want uh-huh. to know about him? I mean, can I ask a couple questions for you? Is that something you'd, you'd be interested in me doing? My first question would be, could I be on the podcast with you and Bob? <laughs> oh, I would say, of <laughs> course. Oh, yes. But, we can yeah, co-host that I'd one if you to, want. We could co-host that one if you'd like. Certainly, certainly. So I've mentioned I have become friendly with musicians. So he's, you know, I've met him. I'll tell you this one story. And I'm actually using it in the new book that I'm writing briefly. So I met Bob after a show, like in my early 20s, you know, drunk, obnoxious. I mean, I wasn't that obnoxious, but... You know, this was in the 90s, a long time ago. You know, he was very gracious. And, and Bob does, famously doesn't do autographs. I don't know if you've ever seen. No, I didn't know that. He's like, oh, I've got Bob's autograph. Like, he he just does a bunch of loops, like a, 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 almost like an infinite M. That's it. Oh. Like, even if you go to eBay, like, you were like, oh, I'm going to buy this Bob Mould signed guitar. Like, he doesn't sign his name. Like, even, like, when he put out The Last Dog and Pony Show, was with Ryko Discs. And they had a deal. This was late 90s. You could pre-order the record and if you did you would get a signed cd single of something ah. like oh i'm actually gonna get a signature this time nope <laughs> it was just like the, <laughs> even that was like oh just a scribble down so anyway my friends three two uh you know me and a couple friends hung out after a show he came out which was very nice to the stage to talk to people we were talking to him and, and one of my friends was trying to convince him to come out and get pizza with us and he, he didn't want it which i totally understand but someone, someone's like, oh, autograph, autograph. I'm like, what? I had no paper on me. The only thing I had on me that was a piece of paper in my wallet was my social security card. Back in the 90s, or even earlier, that's the thing you did. You carried your social security card yeah. around with you in yep. your wallet. Yep. There was no worry of identity theft at that point. No, so anyway, no, not at all. Yeah. Bob, signed, Bob signed my social security card. Oh, wow, <laughs> wow, wow. <laughs> uh, yeah, so anyway, yeah, so like, I, yeah, I, you know, I think I, I tried to send the cabinet at the end of the world to him through an acquaintance and who knows if he got it. You know, and I don't expect, I don't expect musicians to drop. Oh, Hey, this guy, you know, wants me to read his book. No, I get it. I mean, and in some ways, I mean, maybe it's good that he's sort of, he's just a Bob. Oh, right. <laughs> right. And sure. I have, sure. And I harassed him. Cause um, the novel I'm working on now is called the Paul bearers club. It's being written as a faux memoir of the character who's essentially me, but named someone else. So there's some sort of fun with that where I play with autobiographical stuff. But at some point, the character who is me, like in the 90s and early 2000s, is a failed musician. He's tried all these different bands. But he's a big Who's Could Do fan. So like every, every chapter of this memoir is named after a Who's Could Do song. So there's quite a bit of mentioning of Bob Mould throughout oh, that's this great. book that I'm working on. Yeah. So I'm, I'm hoping it's going to be sort of this fun combination of weird memoir, 
that's sort of funny, but also hopefully scary in some parts too. So we'll see. And it is, that is a work of fiction. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, that's the next novel, new novel that Moro, my, my publisher is going to publish. It's due to them in May and they'll do It's due to them in May of 2021 and hopefully it'll come out in 2022. Oh, great. Okay. Wow, that's that's great to know that that's that was another that probably my very final question was what's coming up for you. So that's kind of your next your next project. That you're yeah, the, I guess the the most recent thing, yeah, newest one. Like my publisher is reissuing a couple of older novels. Oh, um, the um the detective uh, novels, first, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Yes. So the, the little sleep and no sleep to Wonderland in, in the U.S. They're coming out as individual novels in January and April, and in, in the U. Hey, they're just going to put them both out in the same volume as an omnibus in April. Oh, gotcha. Um, and th- those novels were published in 2009, 2010. They went out of print a few years ago. So they're not horror, but they are sort of still sort of like dark, really dark and humorous too. And I think both books still sort of play with my sort of ambiguous obsession about, you know, how, how, how malleable like reality and our identities and our memories are. Those are definitely played with in those two books. Oh, cool. And were those, those, were those your very first novels that you wrote? Uh, first published ones. First published. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, 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 you know, I wrote a few novels before that. Some of them will never see the light of day. One eventually was published, but yeah, those were published in 2009 and 2010. Uh, when I was with Henry Holt, very happy to be with William Morrow. <laughs> cool. I cannot wait to read a book that has a Who's Do song as the title of every chapter. It's probably one of the coolest things I've ever heard in my life. That's fantastic, man. That's great. Yeah. It's a little while, but yeah, hopefully eventually. Well, great, Paul. Well, thank you so much for talking to me, man. I really appreciate it. I had a great time talking to you. No, thanks, Bob. This was a lot of fun. No, yeah, those great questions. I appreciate it. I hope I wasn't too rambly. You're great, man. No, I love it. I like you. You were, you're definitely one of those rare people that answered questions before I even had a chance to ask them. So that always works out really good. <laughs> you know, you made it a lot easier for me, less work. So that's great. <laughs> All right. All right, Paul. Cool. Well, you take care. Okay. Okay. Good night, Bob. Thanks. Well, there you have it, folks. The Paul Tremblay interview. Thanks for listening. I had a really, really great time talking to Paul. He's very easy to talk to, really down-to-earth dude. He has absolutely fantastic taste in music as well, so big plus right there. Mr. Tremblay, I would say, knows his way around a novel and short story. Read Paul Tremblay's books. You really won't be sorry. As I said earlier, if you're a fan of horror fiction, supernatural thrillers, stories that make you think, and are also incredibly entertaining, The works of Paul Tremblay are the books you're looking for. I'd highly recommend anything written by Paul. And I'd also recommend that if you are going to buy any of Paul's books, first check with your local independent bookstore before you go on Amazon.com or head down to Barnes & Noble, that kind of thing. With your local independent bookstore, you'll likely be supporting what is a small business where every purchase means something. The purchase of a book from an independent bookshop can mean the difference of them being able to make rent that month or not. So it's very important, especially in these very financially trying times that so many small businesses are going through. So yeah, my recommendation, hit your indie bookshop first, big chain bookstore or Amazon second. I'm Bob and I approve this message. A very huge thank you to Paul Tremblay for taking the time to talk to me on this episode of the Bobcast. I really do appreciate it, Paul. You are awesome. Also, thanks to Paul's agent, Stefan, for setting up this interview with me and being all around helpful and a total joy to deal with. Stefan, you are awesome as well. 
Thanks to Big Drill Car for the Husker Du cover song and Future of the Left for the two amazing songs they provided for this episode. Such a great band. Great bands. Check them both out. As always, I do have to say thank you for listening to this episode. Don't forget, subscribe, rate, and review the Bobcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please consider becoming my patron on Patreon, where all kinds of magical things are happening and will continue to happen as the days go by. That Patreon website is www.patreon.com slash I Wanna Party With Bob. Here's Future of the Left with the song, The Hope That House Built. Thank you so much for listening.
Could anyone choose to die? 